Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Over the last number of weeks, I've been taking note of emails that you send me into that all the time. I've told you that I can't, don't have the time to answer all of them, but I, I read them all. And uh, so I put aside some questions that were asked by you over the past few weeks and points that you were making as well that you wanted addressed as far as the pandemic is concerned and where politics comes into play with all of this. So we've asked, and I'm grateful eternally, to our good friends at Ipsos Public Affairs because they are always agreeable to come on this program and talk to us about the mood of Canadians. They do a lot of work, of course, with globalnews.ca. And uh, Daryl Bricker is the president and CEO of Ipsos, and Sean Simpson is the vice president at at Ipsos Public Affairs, and Sean is with us today. Sean, thank you very much for taking the time. Good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before I ask you the questions that are based on the emails that I received, I just watched uh, or at least read a story on Global News earlier today about the mood that Canadians are in, and Ipsos did a poll in February, 56% of Canadians anxious at that time how are we doing? What's our mood in this country? Well, I think we're upset uh, that we have to go under a third wave of lockdown in places like uh, Ontario and, and, and Quebec and other provinces. Um, but overall, uh, now that we're actually seeing needles going into our own arms, our neighbors' arms, our parents' arms, um, there is um, optimism that... Um, that we're moving in the right direction. And, um, you know, for the last couple of months, our polling has shown that support for the prime minister is, is pretty high. Um, there was a little dip in January, December, when again, we had to go under lockdowns uh, after, after the holidays. And when Canadians realized that we don't have our own vaccine manufacturing capabilities uh, in Canada, uh, they 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 scratched their heads uh, that one momentarily taking over the prime minister, but he's he's since rebounded. Yeah, and we're talking a lot about the uh, the political realities of uh, of the of the of the pandemic. And tomorrow we'll be speaking with the premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, about this some in some detail. But what I've seen, Sean, and what I've, the questions that I'm asking, the points that I've seen made by listeners across the country are, are these: uh, there's a general dissatisfaction with the fact that. The, the pandemic's almost become a political food fight where political parties are trying to gain an advantage over one another, anticipating a federal election before the end of the year. Well, let me ask you this. What is What do you sense, what does your polling tell you, what the view is that Canadians have of politicians generally and their performance during the pandemic, federal and provincial? Uh, almost without exception, Canadians have been very supportive and approving of both the Prime Minister and their provincial premiers. The notable exception is, of course, Jason Kenney in, in Alberta. And maybe uh, you know, not quite as bad and more recent, some frustrations with Premier Doug Ford in Ontario. But by and large, Canadians have, have, have rallied behind their leaders in this time of, of crisis. So that's interesting because I'm, when I look at my emails, I, I see some of that, but largely I see some significant uh, criticism of the way we've moved forward and the fact that we're, particularly that we're low on vaccine supplies in this country. So let me, let me segue to this. How are we likely reacting to the news that our American neighbors are being vaccinated in massive numbers, 175 million, I understand as of now, while we're struggling along around 45th to 50th in the world. How's that resonating with Canadians across the board? Well, again, a couple months ago when essentially nothing was happening in Canada, but we were seeing vaccines rolling out across the U.S., uh, Canadians were not receiving that well. However, uh, they have seen some progress and they're essentially back on track. And what's interesting here is I think 
you know, Canadians are, are um, partitioning their opinions a, a little bit in, in the sense that vaccinations, uh, I think that the, the prime minister is getting um, accolades and strong approval ratings for vaccinations, but lockdowns aren't really his, his bit. That belongs to the premiers. Uh, so the, the prime minister is able to deliver things uh, that are good, whereas the premiers are left with, you know, taking actions that are that are that are more contentious, that are that are seen as bad uh, in in some cases. Now, generally speaking, Canadians support lockdowns, but what they they don't like is sort of what's just happened in Ontario, where we sort of have these half measures only to go you know the full distance two weeks later. So you're telling me that Canadians, by and large, are satisfied with Mr. Trudeau's performance as far as the vaccine delivery is concerned, even though we're around 45th or 50th in the world. Yeah, dis- despite those realities. Uh, the Prime Minister seems to be um, flying high. Now, we'll have some polling out with Global News on Monday. I suspect we'll be having another discussion next weekend about okay. some polling. Uh, and I don't want to scoop ourselves here, but, um, you know, things are still looking pretty good for the Prime Minister. What will then, what will political parties have to do? And maybe this is uh, the news Mr. Trudeau wants in order to call an election following the uh, April 19th budget. But what will political parties and governments need to do because they're all going to be involved in the next federal election. You know that, and I know that. What will political parties and governments need to do to overcome any level of mistrust or doubt which may have uh, have arisen? And I, I, could forward you, I could forward you emails on that score. Uh, well, I think that there is not a lot that they can do or say at the moment when all of the airtime is on the incumbents. There is a, an incredible incumbent advantage right now again, perhaps with the exception of, of Alberta. So given that the airtime at the moment is on the premiers and the, and the prime minister, uh, the Aaron O'Toole and other opposition leaders within the provinces are struggling to have their, their voice heard. That is just simply the reality of the situation. Now, the prime minister may be emboldened by his, his numbers right now, but um, it's pretty risky business, um, you know, manufacturing a defeat when two-thirds of the country is under, you know, stay-at-home lockdown orders. So I, I, my personal view is that it, it's not likely to happen soon. However, if, in fact, the prime minister is able to uh, achieve his char- target of having everybody vaccinated by, I think it was September, then we could uh, very well see a fall election if it can be done safely. Yeah, I have a sense that's what they want, because they see an opportunity. We know we have a federal budget coming up. In a matter of days, on the 19th, what should it contain and what should it not contain? The CEO of RBC has urged the federal government to not spend uh, massively as far as a stimulus is concerned for the economy, uh, suggesting that could lead to inflationary issues. And uh, yet we have the uh, liberal delegates talking about the uh, possibility of a universal income. Just looking through some of my notes here. Also, uh, the idea of forgiving student debt and uh, increased old age security. And, oh yeah, this one, taxing the wealthy. That's always a good one. National Pharmacare and Economic Equality, whatever that means. And the Green New Deal, which I thought was an American concept anyway. We are joined by our good friend and the often requested Dr. Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Ryerson University, as I like to say about the professor. He calls it like he sees it. He doesn't temper his views with any politically correct approach. How do you get away with that? Um, that's an excellent question. I guess I watch my P's and Q's. And, you know, as much as I th- say things like that, um, I know what I can and can't say publicly about my employer. So, um, I, you know, I, I like to sound a little bit more cavalier than I actually am. Uh, but at the end of the day, much like everybody, I, I, I love being able to feed my children. So I, you know, it, it, it's a tempered, um, it's a tempered temper. Temper, temper. I like that very much. Yeah. Okay. So we have the, what, what is your feeling? What are your thoughts? What are your economic thoughts? And your, what is your economic evaluation, macroeconomic evaluation of the idea of a universal basic income for Canadians, given what you just heard the parliamentary budget officer say? You know, when I woke up this morning, Roy, I only had one concern, and that was I was going to get my vaccine. And a huge shout out to the people at Humber River Hospital 
um, there's been nothing but positives come out of that experience. And I was worried about uh, how it would make me feel because I've heard a couple people say it made them uncomfortable. No, I felt fine until I got back in the car and turned on the radio. And I heard that the federal government is going to do everything they can to put the economy into an early grave. That has bothered me far more than any medicine put into my muscles. I don't understand. And I guess it's time that we rephrase the question. And I also have to come out of the closet since I like to do that on your show. I am not now, nor have I ever been an advocate of socialization. And this government... I don't understand where it's coming from. I never have. I never will. And I don't trust it. So let's just rephrase your question, right? Let's just ask the good listenership to rephrase it. So let's not say, are you in favor of pharmacare? And are you in favor of a universal basic income? Let's just turn it around. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, are you excited about higher taxes and lower disposable income? Does it make you more excited to know that these things are nothing more than political overtures to get your vote and have three to five more years of this federal government? Roy, we can go into this. We can take it apart on a micro level, a macro level. But how on God's name in a pandemic, this this government seems obsessed with lowering disposable income is beyond me. Any government, and this one particularly, since they went from a majority to a minority, want to get back to majority, is uh, is absolutely obsessed with the idea of being reelected, and they will do anything that they and you know they're not the only ones, but they're the ones who are in power now. They're behaving like a majority government because the opposition lets them do that, but they want to get back in power. And you're right; these programs, these whole idea, this idea is to get yourself a majority government. And, and that's why we have, uh, we have the finance minister talking about, in vague terms, as you know, Professor Cam, in vague terms, about stimulating the economy to the tune of 70 to $100 billion over the next three years. But again, in vague terms, not telling us what that money, where that money would go. Uh, that's because, says me, the long-term election analyst and observer, because they're going to decide where it goes depending on which way the wind blows during the election campaign. That's where it will go. Meantime, we have the CEO of RBC, the Royal Bank, Dave McKay, telling the federal government, do not overspend on stimulating the economy because it's not necessary and you'll drive us into an inflationary cycle. Your and turn. you want to know how you know that he's right is that the um, the labor force statistics came out on Friday from Statistics Canada. And I was uh, reading them the other day. And, you know, I have to say that the economy is more elastic and more resilient than people think. Don't get me wrong. We're in a spiral and we can't lie about that. But, you know, if you look at the statistics on employment, on unemployment, and on any of the key macro variables, they're bad, but they are not as bad as they actually could be. I mean, there really is some, minimal, but some cause for positive feeling that things haven't exactly hit rock bottom. And I really think that that speaks to the elasticity and the resilience of the Canadian economy. And I'm actually quite proud of it. Um, if, if you can be proud of a, of, a, of a thing that doesn't live and breathe, although I would argue it does. But the largest driver of this economy, the largest driver of any economy, Roy, is, is, is spending, consumer spending. And the largest driver of consumer spending is disposable income. Right. And that's right. nothing more. I know where that is going. nothing more than the money in your wallet. Yep. And so, you know, what do you have to do to stimulate an economy? Well, you either have to have more, you either have to give people higher real incomes or you have to decrease taxes. But what is this government going to do right now? It's going to come in and say, you know what we're going to do? Forget that. Forget the sheer definition of disposable income. We're just going to we're just going to tuck that under the mattress. And we're going to talk about pharmacare and daycare and every other care. And it's all the same thing. It is broadening the social safety net. It is just a tax. And politically and economically, I can't even imagine a worse time to throw cold water on the economy. People have to think, have to realize, have to recognize that governments do not have money. Governments take money. They take money from their tax base, and then if, they're, if they do it properly, 
and it's very seldom done, it appears, particularly these days, then you have a, a working society, and you have a working economy, and you have a balance sheet that you can actually live with. Now, I know a lot of people are going to be saying, well, hold on, the headline green is that the Canadian economy added 300,000 jobs in the month of March, and that the unemployment rate dropped to 7.5%. I'm going to say to you this, fine, yeah, good enough, great news, love to hear it, check with me back in April after the lockdowns. Well, that's what I that's exactly my point. I mean, you, you said it better than me, as you usually do, which is the elasticity of this of this economy is kind of like fighting. It's 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 like fighting to come back. And whatever the liberal government, they just wake up in the morning. They must have a caucus meeting on Zoom and say, what can we do to deflate this thing today? Following the lockdown, they should be bending over backwards to motivate and create spending on Canadian yeah. goods and services. Yep. You cannot just count on the wealthy, that 1%, to spend us out of a recession. It's not going to happen. And it and what really offends me as an economist, you really got me mad here, Roy. What really offends me as an economist is that everything we know about economies, things like marginal propensities to consume, how much of disposable income do we spend, or the money multiplier, how many times does one dollar spent in the economy reverberate? And these are the things that create growth and wealth. And again, all the liberal government are, is doing are coming up with tactics to make these things smaller and smaller. We live in a world which is developing into this line of thinking, government good, employer bad. That is a very dangerous thought process to engage in. We also live in a world or in a country, Professor Cam, where the opposition parties are doing a terrible job of convincing Canadians of their point of view because the opposition parties, and particularly the Conservative Party of Canada, is searching for a reason to exist, and they're not doing a great job of it. And I know Mr. O'Toole is going to be mad as hell that I'm saying that, but that's the way it is. And if you want to challenge that, Mr. O'Toole, get back on this program and give me more than 10 minutes. Well, you know, we live in, you know, philosophically for a second, uh, if I may wax poetic, we live wax in a away. time, ever since the United States housing market fell apart, we really do live in a time of sort of unprecedented attacks on capitalism. And it really pains me when I hear young people and older people alike yeah. looking at the present situation and bemoaning, you see, this is what capitalism does. If you leave things to the market, you get what you get. And I would argue exactly the opposite. This is what you get when you don't allow capitalism the legs that it needs to run when you cut it off at the knees and you expect the public sector to do everything for you this is exactly what you get because the public sector giving away money is not will never be has never been economic growth professor cam i have to take a break here but let's remember one other thing that in the paradise of socialism they had to build walls to keep their people in that's what they had to um do. amen that's what they had to do. And that is not the formula for success. That is a formula for something else. It's called oppression. Email from Bob. Bob writes, you have lived a privileged life. That's why you speak the way you do. Well, I don't want to belabor a point, Bob, because you may be a rookie into tuning into this program. But I lived homeless at 14 years of age. I knocked on restaurant doors late at night at 14 years of age, asking if they had any food left over so my mother and I could eat dinner late at night. My teacher sent me out of the classroom on a phony errand so he could ask my classmates to bring in canned food so my mother and I would have something to eat on Christmas Day. So no, I haven't lived a privileged life. I've worked damn hard for everything I've ever gotten in life. Sorry, Eric. You know, this is infuriating. And so since you've got me already angry, I might as well get really angry. I hear this a lot about entitlement and entitlement and privilege. And, you know, maybe in everybody's life, a little bit of luck is involved. But let me tell you, you show me luck and I will show you miles and miles of hard work. So when I talk to people, and they inevitably do bounce back and say to me, well, how can you relate? You have a PhD and you're a tenured professor. And I am very quick to bounce back and say, nobody 
Nobody worked harder at not one, but two jobs than my father, my grandfather who carried potatoes on his back. And then if you really want to insult my work ethic, you may want to forget that in the 11 years that I studied, that cost me a marriage. It cost me the respect of my grandparents, which is a whole other radio show. All I did for 11 years was study. And so if you want to then convert that or what you went through into entitled, well, you can give it that. But I actually think if you show me a lucky person, a successful person, I will show you somebody who worked their you know what off. And if you to the good listener who wrote that email, if you don't believe that, then what you're saying is, is that that great American or Canadian dream is dead and that you cannot pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make something of your life. And frankly, I think that's garbage. Yeah, I'm with you. So in the two minutes we have left, what do we need to do? What does the government need to do? And what is the responsibility of the opposition parties to get the Canadian economy on track, keep it on track, and create the kind of environment where people feel good about what they're doing and positive about their futures? I think, first of all, I mean, I like this positivity. I mean, as much as you and I have been kind of a little bit down today, you know, let's, let's, let's just put the brakes on this ideological job hierarchy. There are no better or worse jobs in the economy. There's jobs and people need their jobs. It is an honor to be hired. It is an honor to make a living and receive a paycheck. And so what we've got to do is facilitate that. And remember, remember that we are living in a strange time, but this is not the norm. And CERB and and quantitative easing and giving away money is not a plan. It's an emergency. It's a reaction. We've got to, on the behalf of the government and the opposition parties, have to reinforce this. What is your plan to get people back into those jobs? Are you going to freeze public sector spending? How are you going to motivate job creation? How are you going to increase disposable uh, income and get off monetary transfers that we know do not facilitate growth? And again, to people that are going to write me or Twitter me and say that they're not happy with what I'm about to say, I apologize. But if you think that now is the time to initiate carbon taxes and national child care and pharmacare, you're absolutely living in fantasy land. What do you think is going to happen? What do you expect in that budget on April the 19th? And what's the one thing that can't we cannot have there? The one thing we cannot have there are giveaways. And that is the one thing you can rest assured you are going to get because it is horrible timing. It is a pandemic slash pre-election government. Everything I have just said for the last 20 minutes is going to come crashing down when they offer the moon and the stars with no way to pay for it. And it's inevitable. And I need the leaders of the other two parties to hold the liberals feet to the fire and say, how on God's green earth are you going to pay for this? Yeah, well, the liberals want to get NDP voters and get themselves the uh, the seat margin. I don't want to be too tough. Well, I do, but I don't want to be too tough on Aaron O'Toole. He's come on this program. I just think he needs to give us more than 10 minutes because Mr. Trudeau won't even give us 10 seconds and we know why that is. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For the first time, from Global News, this story, for the first time since COVID-19 began, Canada's rate of new cases of the novel coronavirus has eclipsed that of the United States. For the first time, Canada is recording more cases per million population on a rolling seven-day average than our southern neighbor. We were a little smug for some time, weren't we, about closing the border and not dealing with our American neighbors and friends so much because they were in a really serious bad place with COVID. They're not out of the woods yet, but they have distributed 175 million doses of the vaccines. And if you, as I said earlier, I watched uh, some of the Masters yesterday, And none of the players, none of the caddies, none of the officials 
the fans weren't wearing masks. There weren't nearly as many fans as there normally would be at a Masters, but there were considerable numbers, but they were not wearing masks. So their sense of some herd immunity is obviously taking place. But for the first time since COVID-19 began, Canada's rate of new cases of the novel coronavirus has eclipsed that of the United States. Dr. Ronald St. John was for 35 years serving in public health and infectious diseases control in Canada and in the United States, as well as with the World Health Organization Regional Office for the Americas. He was the first Director General of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at the Public Health Agency of Canada, also the National Manager for Canada's Response to SARS. Dr. St. John joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. St. John, thank you very much for the time. I think this is the third or fourth time you and I are speaking since the outbreak of COVID. Did you have a sense, was there any way, any visceral sense that you had that we would be, that the track would be what it's turned out to be at the very beginning of the outbreak? Oh, thank you. Um, Well, going back to the very beginning, let me say that I've always thought that the, that the most dangerous kind of a pathogen or germ that would cause a pandemic is something that was respiratory, spread by respiratory means, by coughing and so on. And it would be a virus uh, easily transmitted that way. Um, and we always thought that it might be one of the bird flus that would uh, do that. Uh, when uh, we first heard about the coronavirus in December 31st in the first weeks of January, it was, well, sort of an interesting phenomenon, the uh, undiagnosed pneumonia in Wuhan. But when uh, cases suddenly popped up in Japan and Korea towards the end of January, that was my uh-oh moment. Uh, I thought a respiratory virus, easily transmitted, now popping up in other countries. That was a concern. How does this uh, COVID pandemic today compare to any other pandemic in our lifetimes? I'm talking about the generations alive today. How does this pandemic compare to others we've faced? Unprecedented um, is the word. Um, The 1918 so-called Spanish flu was a different kind of phenomenon at a different time. Um, but uh, in the past 100 years, nothing like this. Um, are, are you satisfied with, and you have a long history of service with public health in uh, both Canada and the United States and internationally, do you think public health agencies have been at their best over the last year plus? Um, no, 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 I think it's been up and down. Um the reason I say that is that um, uh, the public health has all, has been sort of counterbalanced by economic pressures. Um, the uh, the idea that if you if you close down, of course, the city or the state or the country or the province, you're you're going to obviously affect the economic welfare of that of the people, and um, in those places, um, and that. Trying to work out that balance has been a problem because we've gone up and down, open up, close down, open up, close down. In, in January 8th or 10th in Ontario, there was the highest, uh, this was the second curve, the second wave, there was the highest number of, ca- of new cases per day that we'd ever seen. And we initiated, the, the, the public health units initiated a whole bunch of public health measures uh, and they were quite good because in the next month, during January, early part of February, the number of new cases per day just crashed. I mean, they, they, they fell precipitously to about 1,000 per day. But that's when all of a sudden, well, maybe we should loosen up a little bit. Um, and, you know, I look today at the data, and we are exactly right back where we were on January 7th. So all of the sacrifice, all of the economic losses, uh, were wasted because we th- we just couldn't seem to continue uh, the public health measures uh, that would continue to drive this virus down. How much of a factor in driving the virus down and creating an environment where we're more secure, as people in the United States appear to be, uh, if just, again, anecdotal 
uh, observation on television, watching the Masters and some other sporting events. Uh, uh, I mean, where are we? Where where are we headed with these? Because the variants arrived, yes. and and so they're they're the spitball that we didn't expect to come out of the pitcher's hand. Uh, terrible sports metaphor, but we <laughs> we we weren't prepared for them. But we sh- we should have been prepared for variants, shouldn't we? But wasn't that always going to be the case? Well, yes. Uh, viruses mutate all the time, <clears throat> and it was inevitable that there would be some mutations. Um, they, some of the mutations are, 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 from the virus's point of view, are, are useless. They don't confer any new capacities to the virus. They're just mistakes in, in, in when they replicate. But every once in a while, by chance, you'll get a mutation that does confer some advantage to the virus. Uh, in this case, the mutations were in the are in the uh, so-called spike protein, the spikes that allow the the virus to attach and penetrate the cell, and it made it easier to transmit. Um, and uh, there is a, a, a hint, I mean, there is some in, in information, evidence that it's also a little bit more lethal um, in, in people with high-risk factors. So, uh, yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, there's a concern that it'll continue to happen because there are so many uh, infections around the world, every single infection gives the virus an opportunity to mutate. Mm-hmm. Vaccines, I hear repeatedly, are the answer. And, and I believe that. And I was vaccinated a week ago and feel very fortunate to have been vaccinated. I don't want to wait 16 weeks for the next one, but um, that's discussion. Well, I'll ask you about that in a moment. But I, vaccines are the answer. But are we able... Is that a statement that we can make definitively, that vaccines are the answer? And are we able to stay ahead of um, these mutations of, of the coronavirus when we don't know what it's going to do or how it's going to mutate? Well, let me just introduce a word of caution about the vaccines, because we, we really don't know yet uh, how this will pan out. Um, in the, There are a couple of factors that we still need to study and get more information. Number one is how long does the immunity last? Um, We haven't watched it long enough to know whether the immunity induced by the virus or induced by the vaccine will last um, um, six months, a year, two years, three years. Uh, We don't know. So it is possible that uh, at some point in time, uh, your immunity will wane, it will, will go down, and you might be susceptible again to the virus. Um, another factor that we don't know is, is uh, how effective will we, these vaccines be at, uh, eliminate, at avoiding infection with the virus. We know that the vaccines stop serious illness and they prevent death. That's, that's clearly been established. But do they prevent transmission? Well, looks like they might. There's some early evidence that indicates they might, but not 100%. That means that some people could be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and they could still become infected and perhaps transmit the virus to other people. Uh, There's some things we still don't know. Um, And yes, do we need vaccines? Yes, we need the vaccines. But we also need the public health measures, especially since there's still a large number of people that aren't vaccinated. What do you want to see done as far as public health measures are concerned? Because, as you well know, people are tired of being locked down. People are still, I think, largely cooperative, but they're also fatigued by, by all of this. What, what's, the, what's the most sensible approach? What would you recommend, Dr. St. John, if you were still the Director General of the Center for Emergency Preparedness and Response at PHAC, what would you be recommending? Well, this, we know that this virus is transmitted by close personal contact. Uh, a person who coughs and sneezes, uh, and uh, and that means that uh, if you don't have contact with a lot of other people, you've reduced your risk of acquiring this disease. And the fewer contacts you have, the lower your risk. And in fact, if you lock the door and stay in your house totally alone, you have no risk. That's not practical for everybody, but the idea is to reduce the number of contacts as much as possible. Yes, that's difficult. Um, we are social animals. We'd like to be together and, and talk. 
but uh, and zooming is not a good a good uh, replacement for actual personal conversations but the virus is still there and this is a serious virus and uh, i think i think if we you know if we could emulate in canada what some other countries have done uh, south korea new zealand australia australia uh, last time i looked on april 5th with a population of 25 million people, had only 13 new cases in one day. We have 5,000. Um, so what are they doing? Um, it's the same virus. Uh, so we need to look at that very carefully and say, you know, the, the Australians are very strict mm-hmm. with their public health. Is their, is their vaccine distribution better than ours? I don't know. No. No, it's not. They, uh, they have some, some difficulties right now with supply. Um, a vaccine. They do not produce vaccine nationally. Okay. They have to buy it and import it, and they've had some uh, some difficulty. Uh, Doctor St. John, if vaccines are not the an- not not the complete answer, not the panacea, uh, and we're not sure yet what they'll ultimately accomplish uh, in their present form, and they're evolving as the as the as the uh, as the uh, virus is evolving. Uh, if they're not the answer, and we go to lockdowns or keeping people away from one another, is this just an endemic situation that's just going to be repeating itself and repeating itself? Because the virus doesn't appear to be leaving. If the vaccines aren't going to put a full stop to it, are we just going to have to become an internalized society? Well, a lot of um, I've read a lot of articles um, recently by many many different authorities, and they. The consensus is that this virus is not going to go away 100 percent. Mm-hmm. That it'll become what we call endemic. That means it'll it, it might become seasonal, like flu. Um, uh, we're not sure, but that uh, most people will get vaccinated. We think that most people will be protected, um, but there will be some pe- part, some people in our population that won't be, and we will have little outbreaks um, here and there. Uh, of this uh, of this virus, so it's just going to be it's going to be around. It won't, it won't yeah. disappear. What happened in two, in nineteen nineteen with H one N one when that pandemic ended? Well, the influenza continued to happen every year, right? But it, it was not a pandemic. Okay. Um, so it mutated well, itself into a less viral form. Or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me ask you about the the delay that's been approved by NASI. Uh, the 16-week delay between mm-hmm. vaccines. I received an interesting email from a listener earlier today suggesting that, look, uh, by the time that I get my second vaccination, 16 weeks after the first one, the COVID uh, 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 virus will have changed its form, changed its reality sufficiently so, more than likely, that my that it's going to, the second one won't even be effective because the body won't remember the first one. I found that... I'm not expressing this as eloquently as the listener did, but I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I think that's, that's too short a time period for uh, any new variant or any new um, mutation to actually become that big a problem. Mm-hmm. We know that, that, for example, the South African strain of this virus uh, does, uh, I, I'm sorry, that the AstraZeneca vaccine does not work as as well against the South African strain as it, as it does against other strains. But we also know that the Merck, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna vaccine, uh, they work quite well against the British uh, variant, which is what we have in Ontario right now. Um, but it, it varies from place to place and, and, and variant to variant. So, but, right. but no, I think, I think it's not too long an interval uh, to, uh, for something else to pop up and and ruin everything for us. I don't think that'll happen. What are your thoughts of mixing and matching vaccines? Well, that should be studied. I mean, um, we we may need to um, to look hard at that, depending on supplies, and depending on what uh, what's available. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's a booster dose. You know, the second shot is a booster uh, to stimulate the immune system even more. And do you need the same vaccine to do that? Well. There are some very technical issues uh, because not each vaccine does not produce the exact same antibodies. They're slightly different. So, do you need uh, do you need to get a booster for the same va- antibodies or 
going to be slightly a mix of antibodies. I think it's technically a bit complex. So it needs to be studied carefully. We have about 15 seconds left. In the United States, at least, again, anecdotally, it looks as though they're reaching some level of herd immunity or people are more more confident. Uh, are you getting any encouragement out of what you're seeing from the U.S.? Well, not if you look at Michigan. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. And some other states yeah. where the, uh, the virus continues to spread rapidly. Um, now, it remains to be seen. This remains to be seen whether their, their curve actually goes down. Uh, in the near future. All right. So we we are where we are. It's terribly cliche, but you know that over the last year we have spent a great deal of time on the air with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the small business community in this country. And as recently as 2019, the small business community in Canada created more than 8 million jobs. Think about that. Out of a national population of 37 million, the small business community created more than 8 million jobs. And that small business community has been under tremendous duress, and you know that from the shows that we've aired with Mr. Kelly and with small business owners as recently as last weekend. Tremendous duress with upward of a quarter of a million small business potentially not surviving this COVID reality and the challenges they've been facing and the close-downs close that they've had to deal with and still have to deal with. So it's a major issue. And I was thinking about that over the early part of this week, and I started to wonder a couple of things. Number one, how are the younger small business owners doing? How committed can they afford to feel about staying in that environment, the entrepreneurial environment, when they've witnessed what they've witnessed over the last year plus? How committed can they remain? particularly in a multi-generational business reality. And the other question that I have is this. How have Canadians perhaps morphed, and I hope it hasn't happened, their purchasing, their, uh, their buying? Have we developed or are we developing into a society where we buy online, where it's easier to go to a major online server like Amazon and order your stuff from Amazon or go to the box stores to the exclusion, hopefully not, but possibly to the exclusion of small businesses in this country. And remember, small businesses fuel communities. They're the people who will hire, turn the pot down, please. They are the, they're the people who, uh, who, who uh, hire, they're the people who um, fund uh, the kids' baseball teams. They're the people who are the backbone of communities. So let's talk about this. Joining me again is Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Hey, Dan, good to have you back. Good afternoon. And Lisa Malbrank is the owner, with her parents, of the Diamond Gallery in Winnipeg. Uh, Ms. Malbrank has worked at the business since she was 13 years of age. She was the 2013 Young Entrepreneur of the Year in Manitoba, also the 2013 Woman Entrepreneur of the Year, so named by the Women's Business Owners of Manitoba. And Diamond Gallery was the 2007 Independent, 2017 rather, Independent Retail Ambassador of the Year, so named by the Retail Council of Canada. Lisa, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'll get to a question for you in just a second, Lisa, but Dan, let's just, again, look at where we stand today for the small business community in this country, facing, again, lockdowns and restrictions. Where are they? Where are we vis-a-vis where we were, say, six months ago? And how dire is the situation overall? It's getting increasingly dire uh, every single day, uh, and depending on the province, in, in absolute freefall. Uh, we've had uh, about half of our business members uh, closed once again. That means either fully or partially closed. More and more lockdowns of different elements of the business community every day. Ontario has now returned retailers right across the province to the lockdown list, even expanded it. Uh, to the Ontario government's credit, they've, they've at least leveled the playing field between small and large retailers in the big box setting. But it is... It is really desperate, Roy. I mean, $170,000 worth of debt the average small firm has taken on during COVID. Uh, we have 180,000 firms, as you well know, that are that are not quite sure whether they're going to survive the next number of months. Uh, it is it's pretty grave. And and I was correct when I said some eight million plus jobs were created by small business, right? Absolutely. No, it's it, it is the largest source of private sector employment. 
uh, other than government, uh, you know, small and medium-sized firms. Canada is a nation of small and medium-sized businesses. We don't have a huge number of big companies. And uh, as a result, it has been certain sectors of the economy that have really taken it on the chin. Anything that depends on on personal contact with a customer, that could be retail, bricks-and-mortar retail, uh, the hospitality sector, arts and recreational businesses, tourism-related businesses, personal services like hair salons, nail salons. These are the ones that have been taking it on the chin even hardest. Uh, Lisa Malbrank, who is the uh, owner of the Diamond Gallery in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Lisa, you're a young entrepreneur, second-generation entrepreneur. You've been with the company, your parents' company, your company, since you were 13 years of age. You've been at the forefront of what's happened over the last year. Plus, as far as your company is concerned and small business in this country is concerned, how challenging has the situation proven itself to be to you and your company? And was there ever a time where you said to yourself, and maybe you've talked to other young business owners about this reality, where you said to yourself, I don't know if I can continue this way. Well, I'm not sure if I've ever actually asked myself that. Um, It definitely has been a challenging, it's been challenging for everyone across Canada, but especially as a small business owner, there's so much unknown that we're faced with. And um, I think the expression, or to describe it as dampened enthusiasm is a a great way of putting it. It... uh, um, Running your own business uh, comes with its own sets of challenges as it stands. Um, that you know you, you don't really necessarily have someone to turn to you know, who is a superior to yourself to ask for guidance and uh, and support. My parents and I just have each other, and um, as for re- regular situations that come up um, that businesses are faced with is one thing, but a pandemic and closures is a very tough pill to swallow. So yeah, it's been a very challenging time and. Um, I can speak for small business across Canada. It's definitely, uh, it's been very difficult. You have found it necessary to adjust, as small businesses across the country have found it necessary to adjust, to pivot, if you will. What are some of the things that you've had to do in order to to, to keep, keep going? Well, um, for ourselves, one thing that we've kind of always been on the fence uh, for was to um, possibly launch into e-commerce. And this, we were always a bit hesitant in the past because we feel that we offer a very personalized uh, customer experience when uh, when shopping at our store. And uh, we deal with a higher price point ticket item, and we always feel as though educating our clients is important. So we hesitated on the e-commerce front, but when the pandemic hit and our store was forced to close in, in March, um, it did give me more time to put into uh, basically... Here we go. We're launching e-commerce, and uh, we now have over 400 items on our e-commerce site, and it gives our, our clients a chance to kind of pre-shop or actually purchase online, um, something that we didn't do before. So that's one of the pivots that we uh, are now grateful in hindsight that we, we kind of were forced into to giving it a shot, um, and it has worked well for us. Um, the other pivot that we have uh, it's actually kind of been on my mind and the radar for the last few years is to uh, to open by appointment. Um, because we live, uh, we ourselves in our industry, we work in um, very, we're keen on educating our clients, um, working with them uh, to ensure that we're providing them great product information as gemologists and also to, um, you know, give them a really personalized customer experience. And um, and in a time where showrooming has been uh, an issue, which we can delve into in a minute if you'd like, um, by scheduling an appointment with a professional, we feel like we're giving them um, the best type of service and experience possible. And it, and that pivot has really worked well for us, especially uh, giving, given the capacity limits that we're able yeah, to. Uh, yeah. When you hear that kind of news, Dan, that we're now we now have more cases per million or cases of infection than the United States, when they're so far ahead of us as far as vaccination is concerned, that's not good news for the small business community either. It's sure not, gosh, uh, deeply troubling. And, and of course, many, many businesses are, are seeing every bit of the news with, uh, with trepidation. I just saw somebody posted on Twitter uh, a few minutes ago a, a meme showing that there's only three more lockdowns until Christmas. Yeah. And if, if that doesn't say it all, that's... Uh, that's 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 pretty that's pretty worrisome. And I, what I will say though is that provinces are beginning to pivot their vaccination strategies. More and more vaccines are being delivered. 
Uh, I am happy to report that I got vaccinated as a 52-year-old because I live in a COVID hot zone uh, here in the city of Toronto. Uh, But we need that. Uh, We need those vaccines in yesterday. We also need them in an employment-based setting. We finally figured out that we and and now have vaccines in most people living in congregate living settings, uh, the elderly people in nursing homes, etc. Now we need to focus on congregate work settings. And so many business owners are calling us saying, hey, I want to make sure that I facilitate, not mandate, but facilitate my employees to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it seems like provincial governments in Quebec, in British Columbia, uh, and in Ontario are starting to do just that. So that is good news. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll take, a, take a chunk out of these COVID infections we're seeing run rampant. Well, it all comes back to the supply of vaccines, though. Ultimately, we can make as many appointments as we want. If the product isn't there, then we can't fulfill the the appointments. But uh, more on that to come. Let me ask you this, Dan, before I ask, uh, go back to, to Lisa and the small business owner's perspective. Is there a danger? Has it perhaps shown itself that Canadians may be drifting away from spending money at small businesses and becoming more accustomed to shopping at box stores or, or shopping from a, a massive online a distribution center like Amazon? It's a big worry. I mean, we've seen this happen. I mean, a lot of these trends existed pre-COVID, particularly with the rise in online shopping. But but everybody got a big taste of online shopping during the pandemic because in many, many cases, there weren't a lot of other alternatives. The question on the minds of many bricks-and-mortar retailers is, is that going to be coming back? Am I going to see some of those customers return to my business if now they're getting same-day delivery or next-day delivery at no cost through Amazon? And so it's caused a great deal of fear and consternation. Many. The good news is, as many small retailers are beginning, at least just talked about this, beginning to pivot themselves to online sales, that is good news. But for so many firms... The reason that people go to a small business, like Lisa's, is because they want the personalized service and attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that, we hope, will mean that those customers will come back once we're able to end physical distancing requirements. Lisa, are you generally optimistic about, I gather from what you've said to us so far that you are, but I want to ask you nevertheless, are you generally optimistic for your business? Are you generally optimistic for small business in Canada? Or do you think it's more sectoral or maybe regional? Well, I myself am, uh, tend to be an optimistic person to begin with, so I myself remain optimistic, but, I mean, there's definitely still some worries. Um, but as far as lar- large, big, uh, the Amazons and the, all the other large big box or big retailers that, are, that exist online, it is a, a big worry um, for lots of small uh, business owners. I know my mom was buying a pair of, pair of shoes at a great local shop not far from our own store, yesterday and uh, could overhear other people shopping in there looking at the SKU numbers to buy them online. And that as a small business business owner, seeing that in a retail space is really hard. Yeah. Um, if you are going to use the services and the expertise and the atmosphere and um, that, this, that small bricks and mortar retailers offer across Canada, um, you have to remember to support them if you want them to, to be there in the future. We're exactly. members of the community. Exactly correct. And great supporters of the community. But as you, most importantly, as you just said, you're members of the community. You're the people who live in the neighborhood. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Thank you.